Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions. Questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt. Questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Hey, we're gonna be in Genesis 1, verses nine and 10. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Whenever I'm in Genesis 1, I feel like I want to know uh, who had flannel graphs or something like that as a kid or like books and how each day of, and part of creation was um, represented on those flannel graphs. <laughs> What was the picture? I feel like usually for like day one, the picture was sun, but I'm always particularly curious. We just started at the beginning of day three, but day two, God makes a firmament. And I'm always particularly curious if any flannel graphs, like what they tried to do for making a firmament. Like <laughs> it's this like separating water from water and creating the sky. And I feel like it's this day where no one knows what to do with it. So whenever I'm close to that day, that's what I'm thinking about is what, how do you depict it from mint in the sky? Did you guys grow up with flannel graphs? Well, we had flannel graphs. We also had drawings on chalkboards and whiteboards. I actually, what I remember, is I remember when we had worship, they would put it on like big poster boards. Mm -hmm. And I was always wanted to be able to write like that because I could never write that neatly. Um, <laughs> that's what I, <laughs> like, well, but I don't, I, I never, okay. The word firmament was never used in my, in my Sunday school sessions. That part I know I'd never talked about like that being <laughs> made, like for sure. We talked about like separating water from water, but I never thought about what, what was left in the middle. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother, that's not where we started our verses today, but I would, I think it's just interesting. I think it's good for us when we're starting into a passage to like, think about our history with the passage, which is sometimes complex or, um, you know, we've heard lots of sermons on it. I feel like days of creation or 10 commandments more often take people back to childhood than to sermons, because those are more often passages taught in Sunday school. So it's sort of going back to like, how did we experience this passage in Sunday school? And maybe even getting curious about why it's not taught more often outside of the Sunday school context. Like why does creation feel like it's the right lesson for kids, but doesn't end up in very many sermon series. I just so, love that question alone. Yeah. Like, okay. Let's pause. No, that. I just, I just love that question alone. Like why, like why are certain stories like only for kids and why are other stories and why aren't those stories talked about with adults? I just think that's a fascinating question. Cause I'm thinking of, creation i'm thinking of the ten commandments i'm thinking of noah's ark i'm thinking of daniel in the lion's den i'm thinking of shadrach meshach and abednego there's just all these kind of big stories in a way and i think i say them because they're big because i've known about them since my childhood so they mm -hmm. feel big yeah like there's not many sermons about them it's interesting and, I, and then it's interesting too because like some of them that are in that list are actually not very good children's story like noah's ark is a terrible children's story <laughs> It's a very Terrible. tragic, difficult passage about like evil and the destruction of mankind and like, but there's animals and they're cute. So, right. And it ends with nakedness kids. and we don't talk about that either, which we talked about in the last episode. <laughs> we did so. talk about that in the last episode. See, we're getting in, we got into Noah's Ark last time. So now we'll get into, we'll get into creation and bring those children's stories forward. That's the theme of this season is uh kids stories come to life. <laughs> Is that maybe? Well, and so I think part of where we pause then when we're in the creation story is to say, okay, if we believe God to be powerful and um, let's think about all of those big descriptive words we use for God, if God is God, God then could create creation in any way that God wants. That's my theory I would like to throw out. And therefore, 
what do we see about what God is like through the way that creation unfolds? So uh, God, and this even gets into sort of ancient creation narratives in the, in the East Eastern world is to say, okay, is this a God who is creating everything all at once with a snap of the finger? Is this a God that is creating because he's bored? Is this a God creating because he's looking for servants? Uh, what does this creation narrative say about this God that is reflected in the Bible? And what does it mean to sort of notice that? We started with verse nine. So what's God doing? In Genesis one, verse nine, this is the beginning of day three. I'm just going to say, do you know what I noticed? Hmm. Is that when you talked about God creating, you talked about God as he. Hmm. And then I was thinking, does it matter to me if I think about God creating, if I think about like, is God as feminine, God is masculine, God is both, God is not gendered or all gendered. Um, does that, does that change how I, like how I think about things being created? Hmm. And actually I felt like, yes, it did. Um. Well, and interestingly enough, I mean, this could be a long rabbit trail, but perhaps a good pronoun to use in creation would be they. That's gonna be a little, little, uh, take a deep breath, everybody. <laughs> listening. Well, I'm good. I don't need to. I know. Breath. I know. Like some people are celebrating <laughs> and some people are having a panic attack right now. We've already seen when we go back to verse one, we see God. We also see the spirit of God, Ruach, hovering over the waters. Ruach, by the way, is feminine. So we could use she when we're talking about Ruach. But when we're then, the word used over and over again in Genesis one for God is Elohim. Elohim is a plural noun. Um, El is singular. Elohim is plural. And so uh, the God that is speaking here is being the word used Elohim would technically actually be God's, not just and God said, um, which that's where it's a little bit like everybody take a deep breath. <laughs> there's, there's lots of ways we could think about that and reflect on that. So maybe we just start talking about like, what does it mean to just pause and say Elohim is a plural masculine noun. And that is the word being used for God in the creation narrative. What pops up for you? So my dorky self to be first thing, I mean, you're asking the question, what's the first thing that popped in your mind? The first thing that popped in my mind was the author Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings, wrote this book called the Silmarillion. And at the beginning of the Silmarillion, it talks about the creation of Middle Earth. And the way that Tolkien describes the creation narrative for the world that he's building is that there are these godlike angelic beings that are all dancing in unison. And as they dance and sing together, creation is being sprung forth from their unity. And so there's a plurality, but then there's also a unity to that plurality. And the singing is what creates. And so it's, it's that idea of something spoken and sang and out comes the creation of like earth and the creation of certain beings. Like, of course, in middle earth, it's like elves and humans and things like that. Um, and then there's, uh, there, there's a disruption to the singing because somebody sings in discord to that. And that's when you have chaos come into the mix. And that's a whole nother Genesis three, maybe mm -hmm. illusion. But the idea that, as you mentioned, like, what does it make me think of when it's like the plurality potential of God that image of the, the, what Tolkien paints in the Silmarillion came to mind. I mean, that's, I don't know. That's dorky, but it's pretty cool. I've that's books. I know. I mean, that puts you in line. That's, that's uh, Stephen Colbert's favorite Tolkien book. And he's a huge, I don't know if you've ever, <laughs> he talks about that book. Um, and Tolkien was brilliant and he was a theologian and there's lots of spiritual truths he's trying to reflect in his writing. And that's at Lisa, you like, look, you kind of, you had a nice smile when Jason was describing that. Oh, I just appreciate a good nerd. Um, cause like, I, well, cause like, I, I've not read it. I mean, I love the Lord of the Rings, but I've only done movies. Right. So like, I'm like a fake nerd. Um, I like watch from the outside, but I appreciate it. And I think like, I think there's a, it was beautiful. I totally envisioned the creation. What I appreciate for myself when I can catch myself and put on like the pronouns of like they, them, 
what it helps me do is like pull for me it helps me pull in also like a like a trinity it helps me pull in spirit it helps me pull in more pieces and so it does for me it like it kind of expands who i see god as and it like kind of takes it out of the box that i've had that god in for so long mm-hmm. so it just helps me see i don't know it kind of just it shakes it a little bit for me but then it for me like it pulls in spirit which is really helpful cuz then i kind of well, in particular it, like the passage says like like god said like god spoke and so like how do i hear a voice and mm-hmm. if i hear like if i hear it in a solid masculine it's a big booming like voice of creating and if i hold in that there's spirit then i have like it's like it's like got some stardust on it i don't mm-hmm. know i love that that's cool well and and i um, there's a certain uh, woman by the name of Lisa Adams who wrote an essay once for the uh, for the magazine at Luther Seminary. Uh, it's probably floating out there on the interwebs for anyone who'd want to look it up. It's floating. Um, sure. <laughs> about um, the LGBTQ uh, plus community, actually, in in the sort of push that that uh, has happened in recent years to think about gender pronouns and how someone identifies has pushed into this conversation where they, them pronoun can be used for a singular being. And that as Christians have wrestled with the Trinity for years and kind of wondered about who God is and how there can be three in one, actually there's this opening to say, oh, there, there's a they, them pronoun that can be a singular way of thinking about a they, them that maybe encompasses something more than we've heard or thought of it as before. Um, and could be something that maybe those struggling with gender identity and God might want to play with. Um, like maybe they, them is helpful. That's totally, they, them would be totally accessible here based on the fact that Elohim is plural. She could be accessible here based on the fact that the spirit of God is who is hovering over the waters at the beginning. And there's a femininity to that in the language. Um, if that's helpful to you. And I think this is a masculine noun. There are times where God, and so he would also be fine, but maybe what we can do is we can just say, let's not box in what pronoun we use for God here. And maybe let's picture Jason's nerdy, wonderful Sumerian um, picture of something emerging from a community that already existed inside of God, which again is already laying out a different sort of creation than something like a God who's mad or bored. What kind of community already exists that is birthing something more uh, to enter into that community? And so um, anytime we're in the creation narrative, it actually, we're, we're sort of, any day we pick, we're sort of plunging into a story that already happened before. So we already have referenced now verse uh, two, which is where the spirit of God is hovering uh, over, the, over the waters. And then in verse three, uh, what does God make? It's probably helpful just to lay the context of what's already been made at this point. God says, I, I feel like I want to pause just so listeners can fill this in. Cause I feel like we've got on, on the beginning of day one, God says, let there be light. <laughs> I wasn't sure how long to pause there, but yes. Right. Uh, I, probably a lot of folks, we know this, even if we didn't get raised in the church, probably people know that phrase of let there be light. And that's happening on, on day one, verse four, God sees the light that it's good. God separates the light from the darkness. God calls the light day, the darkness night. We could do a whole podcast on this episode or on this uh, verse. It was evening and morning, the first day. Verse six begins day two of creation. Let there be a firmament, which we already talked about in the midst of the waters, dividing water from water in the ancient world, because the sky is blue and water is blue. Um, the ancient world, they thought there was water in the heavens, just as there's water on the earth. So firmament is the idea of something that holds back the waters of the heaven from collapsing to the waters of the earth. So it's the idea that the sky is actually holding something back. Um, Again, could have a whole podcast on that. But now here we are at the beginning of day three. So the waters, there's light and there's separation of waters and waters. And so now in verse nine, God says, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so the dry ground may appear. And that is what happened. Uh, why? Why this? Why this next? What, is, what does this do? Creates place. Uh, right? Because it's the creation of land. Um, Otherwise, it's just all water. 
and, and I, I would imagine in the ancient world, water was often associated with chaos. And so this would be God bringing order uh, to some degree. But it also doesn't say he create like, um, okay. I don't, <laughs> it doesn't sound like land is created. It's like he's making space for land to come forth, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I think I've always thought of it like being created versus... Yeah, like it's already let, being there. Kind it's of. let the dry appear, um, ra'ah be seen. So it is like there what there is land that was already there, and there's water that's already there. And what God is doing is, I love the, I love what you said. He, he, uh, he, they again pronouns play with them. Um, created Jason because you said place because it uses that word place here. <laughs> so there's a creation of place in a sense but not through making land, but through helping land appear, separating water from land so that there's now two distinct entities going on. We have land and we have water because, and that happens because the, uh, the waters have been gathered on into one place. And so the dry can now appear. And then what happens in verse 10? There's the naming of the dry ground and the naming of the waters, dry ground being land and the waters being seas. Okay, so we have the dry is being named earth, and the gathering of the waters is being named sea, and then God does what? Saw that it was good. God sees that it is good. And then what happens in verse 11? Those who don't have their Bibles with, we can tell them. Then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that is what happened. And what doesn't happen until verse 13? You mean 14? Uh, we have no 13. Sun. 13. Oh, we didn't have a, we don't have a new day yet. Okay. So this goes to like the Sunday school thing that when we, because we've learned it in Sunday school, we think there's a pattern that's not quite the pattern we think it is. <laughs> Meaning we think God speaks, let there be something. That something is God sees that it is good. And then there's evening and morning on that day. Right. Mm-hmm. But what's happening here on uh, day three? There's a, there's a, a seeing that takes place before the day is over. Okay. And there's a seeing that something is good that happens in the middle of day three. And actually, when we go up to day two that we read through in verse eight, what's not in verse eight? Any pronouncement of it being good. Any seeing of good doesn't happen in verse eight about about day two. Now, again, there's lots of conversations we keep having about this, but this is where we're like taking a slow read of like, okay, what is the pattern and what do we see in the pattern? If it's not just always the same, God says, God sees that it's good. God calls the end of the day. Sometimes God's speaking something. Sometimes God's making something sometimes it's seen as good uh, at the end of a day. Sometimes it's not seen as good at the end of the day. Sometimes something's seen as good in the middle of the day. What do we see in all that? What's being revealed to us? Um, you look deep in thought <laughs> or, or confused. I'm not sure what. You're talking to me? Yeah, I yeah. was just looking at the passage and I never noticed this before. I mean, you know, because that, that Sunday school God does this, God says this, day and night. God does this, God says this, saw this, day and night. And it's just like that pattern. And so to have a day where there is no good or or seeing of good, and then there's like two in the next day is just, I, I, it's funny how many times you can read something and not actually have it be accurate in mm-hmm. your understanding. And then that's where it gets interesting, right? Because then we can say, well, then why is it that way? What's, what's so, and in, in this case for the passage we're in, what's so good about what's happening in verse nine and 10, that it's worth pausing in the middle of the day to see its goodness. Cause what we just said happened is water's gathered and dry appears. Why does that merit a middle, middle of the day? Good. Lisa, are you, I'm, are you some, I, I'm curious where you are. <laughs> You're thinking about just, something. No, I'm just uh, looking at the passage and. <laughs> yeah, this is a, this is an interesting one. I feel like we're giving the 
we're doing the podcast no-no of creating a lot of dead space because this is one where like my brain is like drawing immense amounts of blanks because it's not doesn't have foothold at the moment because this is so like disorienting so Mm -hmm. I'm now filling the disorientation uh, silence with a whole bunch of words about disorientation to make <laughs> this podcast a little bit more interesting for people. But that's, but I mean, that's probably good because it, like, it might. This probably is again. We we don't spend a lot of time in Genesis one unless you've been a part of Forty Orchards a lot. Then the joke is, how long will it take for us to get to Genesis one? Because things go back here a lot. Right. But without that, many of us haven't spent a lot of time here to think about what's happening. How is this unfolding? And what does that reveal about the creation? And what does that reveal about God? And how are these disorienting things actually nuggets for interesting conversation and wondering and seeing what we see? Okay, so I have two massive thoughts, and I don't know if either of them are going to be helpful at the moment, but since we're not actually talking yet, I'm just going to start talking and we'll see what happens. So the two massive thoughts that I'm coming to because of this new realization that is just hitting me for the first time upon reading Genesis for the millionth time is two, two ideas. One, the chaoticness of water in the ancient Near East would have been so prevalent to people telling a creation narrative that just the separation of those is not enough because there's still a focus on the water. So the idea that on day two, God separates the water with the firmament, well, that doesn't really solve the problem because we're still just chaotically in the midst of water. So that doesn't really help me. So why would that be called good? It's only good when there's some control put in place and that would be the land. That's idea number one. Idea number two is that how does this story serve humanity being the maybe the trajectory of what God is up to? And if humanity is the trajectory of what God is up to, creating place and space for us, then it wouldn't be good until that water has been harnessed and there actually is place for humanity and life to actually exist. Okay. Well, and that takes it into like using this day to look a little deeper into the creation narrative. So when we're in verse 11, God says, you already read that there's the creation of vegetation. What are the actual words that God says about that vegetation? Where does it come from? The land. Let the earth bring forth grass. Where did the earth come from? It was already there. It just needed to be exposed. Yes, right. Verse 10. So the earth had to be exposed and the earth is exposed. The earth is named. And now in verse 11, that earth has space or place as you've used to be able to bring forth something. Um, as the sea, as the water is gathered and called seas, what happens in verse 20 of Genesis one, let the water swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. Okay. So, so we have this gathering of waters and we have this appearance of land. And so what does that allow for space for fish? <laughs> okay. There's something about this, something about what has happened in this beginning of day three has also allowed space for the fish and the, uh, the, the creatures of the sea to be created on day five. So it's good that we're creating room for life to spring forth. Okay. There's something that's good about the space created from which life can come. How does that expand our definition of what good is? So there's these things in creation are called good. That's the word tov in Hebrew. How does that expand our definition of tov beyond just the life itself? How can this be tov if, if it's not yet filled with living creatures? If it's not yet vegetation, if it's not yet fish, if it's not yet... What's good about this? God sees that it's good and cares enough to have that named. I feel like it's possibility. Mm. Like it's, it's potentiality. Well, yeah, it's creating space for the life to come forth, but it's like, even if it does nothing, it's still good. 
okay, to pause Mm. here, there's something perhaps where God is seeing there is goodness here in this potentiality, even if nothing happens, nothing happens after this moment. Like what if this in and of itself is good? This is where like, you can really fast forward to like application and be like, especially from a cultural standpoint or societal standpoint, if you're not producing, 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 creating, 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 then what are you as opposed to like being and existing Mm -hmm. is enough and is lovable and is worthy. It's not about what you do, 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 but it's just the fact that, you know, that you're human, that you were, that Mm -hmm. the fact that you were created was enough. And there's a goodness in that doing too. Like that comes later. Like at the end of the day, there's a goodness at the end of this day, there's a goodness named about all of these trees that have all of this fruit with all this seed in it and all of the ways the life is going to keep producing life. God sees that that's good too. It got us seen that both are good. Both halves of good of day three are good. The creation of the space is good. And the life that space produces that can keep producing more life is also good. We have good and we have good twice in this day. Well, I think we just don't pause often enough when we're in the midst mm-hmm. to say, like, this is good. Like, it's often that I've got to have, like, the finished product, like, product I want you to have. When it's all complete, like it feels more natural that God would say after the whole thing is created, right? Like, and as we like to think of ourselves as the, the it's being created for us, <laughs> I don't know that that's true. <laughs> uh, but like in the idea that like God's doing it, like we're like the, you know, we're the topping on that Sunday. That's us. That, that that's when God would say, it looks good. But like. It's like when God just has like the Sunday dish and the spoon. That's good. Right here, we're good. This is good. <laughs> and maybe it's like excitement for what's to come. Um, and maybe it's just like that's, it's just pausing enough to recognize midstream that it's good. Okay, you use the word recognize. This is another place we get sloppy with how we say creation uh, how we tell the creation narrative. And I heard you do this earlier, Jason, that you paused yourself <laughs> because we often say that God says that things are good, but Lisa said, pause to recognize that things are good. And the, the actual language in Genesis one over and over is that God sees that it is good. There's a recognition of goodness. There's a pausing to recognize goodness at all of these steps along the way, not just when it's a finished product, when all of the world, now when it's a finished product, then we get a tov mayod. That's a very good, that's an exceedingly abundantly tov and good. But that doesn't change the fact that along the way, there was also tov goodness to be seen. Um, And I love that picture of like when it's an empty bowl with a spoon in it. Let's recognize that that's good, even before there's any ice cream, Um, which uh, that feels like such a good thing to pause on. Like, what is that feeling? I don't know if, do we all like ice cream enough to have ice cream be the thing? Oh yeah. That's okay. (laughs) What is that feeling when you get out the ice cream and you get out the ice cream bowl and you get out the spoon and have not yet put the ice cream in the bowl? What's good about that? I could spend so long talking about this. It's not even funny. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like well, Lisa picked the right metaphor so for Jason. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, Lisa, you better say something. Because... No, what, but why is your heart so happy? You know what? It, like you're just exuding oh, joy I right mean, now at the thought of a empty. Oh, because every, uh, not every, there have been many nights where getting through the day of parenting has been rewarded with a bowl of ice cream. And there is something so satisfying about walking into the kitchen and getting the bowl out and putting it on the counter. And I could just die in that moment, knowing that like, that's like the closure of something else, like the bowl and like the spoon. And like, and here's how I know it's the closure is because if I don't do it at the right time, the making of noise of putting the spoon in an empty bowl 
will bring my oldest son out of his bedroom and ask me why I'm getting food and he doesn't get to have any. And it will ruin the whole experience. So the bowl and the spoon <laughs> is like, if, if it's done at the right time, I, it's just, it's, it's like the, it's like the gateway into like paradise. Like, Ooh. okay. Keep that word gateway. Cause that's going to come back in. If, if we can get there within an hour, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, Lisa, okay, what's that moment for you? Well, I mean, it's a little different when your kids are older because now it's just like it's a treat and you know the treat, like it's different. It, it actually, and it's actually, it's different than when you pull out like the dinner plates. And in particular, the Sunday is like this, like you get to make all these decisions, right? Like what kind of ice cream are you going to put in there? And then what kind of toppings are you going to do toppings? Are you going to do toppings? How, what are you going to make it to be? And so it's, like like a, it's like a blank canvas. Yeah. And a, and a, and a, and a really like delicious combo of known and unknown. Like I know I'm going to have ice cream, but I, I, there's so many decisions I get to yet make about how, what flavor I'm going to put in this bowl and how it's going to come together. How much am I going to eat? This metaphor is not, it doesn't, I, I am dairy free now for the last couple of years. So it doesn't, although I can like remember what that's like, but I actually, what I'm thinking about is just, well, well, I'll be the second on the nerd train. What I'm thinking about is the joy of getting a new planner. Like I really love the feeling that I'm going to get pretty soon. Cause I tend to just run a January one of like looking at my blank planner and like starting to put stuff in it for the first time. But that feeling of even like I've got the planner and I've got the pen is a moment <laughs> that I really appreciate in that moment. I appreciate the unboxing. I appreciate the feeling of the pages. I appreciate the, like, sometimes I'll get a couple new pens to go with it. Um, that that moment has a, it's not just about filling it actually sometimes filling it. Like as soon as I make my first like handwriting mistake in my planner and I have to cross something out. Oh, I hate that. It's <laughs> so like in the beginning, it's just like, oh, it's, it still looks it's just like ready. How's that for nerdy? You guys are talking about ice cream and I talk about a planner. I think it's beautiful. I mean, <laughs> okay, I I think it's unfortunate that you went from ice cream to planner. <laughs> yes. There's gotta be another one. <laughs> well, well, that's, I was just being honest that that was what was rising up in me. I mean, I also was thinking about canvas because I am an artist and I've got all of these art pieces around me and there's something that is exciting about a blank canvas. So if I'm honest, it's also maybe a blank canvas is a good one because and a blank canvas is also intimidating. Yeah. Um, I, it say, is, I get kind of nervous. Like, so as a person who writes and, puts down thoughts for like speaking and stuff. Like one of the scariest things is like a blank word document. The, the blank is sometimes hard to start from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it helps to have just, it helps me have a blank canvas. If I already have something stirring, well, I don't know. Sometimes not. Sometimes the blank is good. Oh, Lisa, you got a thought on this? Well, I think it's, we're going to kill a metaphor. Um, just because whatever it's, what we do it. thinking, it's okay <laughs> what I was thinking about was like it feels like it's almost like a layer though and so I was thinking like okay I can't do this because we don't have a good bathtub but if I had a good bathtub like one of those like big soaking ones you know once upon a time I had one when I had a rental there was nothing nothing better than like filling the bath mm. and then making the cup of tea lighting a candle, getting a book, putting on some music, like all the different layers, like each layer in and of itself was, is good. Like I like a, like a good candle. I like a good candle. Mm -hmm. I like a cup of tea, but like you put all that together and it is like, nothing like it. It's a yeah. happy place. <laughs> yeah. Well, very happy there. <laughs> well, and I mean, I think what this is doing, I, I don't think it, it's, I, I feel like that that's a good number of stories for, for people to find themselves someplace in that. Cause we know that feeling, whatever it is for us, whatever routine we have, whatever food we have, there's that feeling of something that is good because of what is and good because of what's coming that creates this goodness. We can pause and see and feel during 
And what if that's what God is like? Like God wanted in the middle of this day to just be like, ah, look at the land and see. Yeah. <laughs> that that feeling of lighting the candle, that feeling of getting out the bowl seems to be a feeling that God has. Like, oh, look at, look at, look at, oh, good, good. I can relate to that. We're going to take it deeper now that we have felt it because verse nine, Genesis one, nine is the first use of the word hope in the Bible. Um, the word kava is the word for the gathering together of the waters in Genesis one, nine, let the waters under the heaven kava into one place. So kava literally means to gather together, but that gather together every other place than here pretty much uh, is translated as either weight or hope because it's used in places like, um, I would say probably one of the more famous ones that would uh, perhaps be worth saying out loud is Isaiah 40, 31. Those who kava the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Kava is sometimes translated as wait, those who wait upon the Lord, sometimes translated as hope, those who hope for the Lord shall renew their strength. The word is kava, and the literal action of it is what happens to the waters as they're gathered in one place in Genesis 1 9. How does that affect how we think about what it means to wait or hope? This whole conversation we've just had about what's good in this moment. What does it mean to wait and hope? Well, it makes it feel like it's, in this context, I feel like it's a very positive wait and hope. Um, it feels very, um, like, I don't think God is hoping from a desperate place. It's like hope from an expected place, maybe, that I'm sensing. But I think I'm also like, what I'm hearing is, um, I spend some time with uh, people who are incarcerated. And when they talk about hope, it's very different. Um, it has a much harder, it comes from a more desperate, hard place. Um, like how to have hope, like looking for hope. And so I'm, I'm just noticing it that as I'm reading it, I'm sensing that. And so I'm actually curious, kind of like where we'll go with it or how to they kind of hold that, like, like, it almost feels like there's different ways of hoping. Well, maybe, okay, maybe that actually goes to another use of the word hope that's an, instead of being a verb is a noun. And maybe part of the conversation is the hope that's a noun and the hope that's a verb. Um, because that comes into play as a noun with the word tikva. And tikva is what is used in the story of Rahab in the book of Joshua that when, um, when she has uh, the spies come into Jericho um, to see what's, what's what and whether they're going to be able to take that place, Rahab hides them um, and uh, in return asks for them to save her family that when they kill, when they, I mean, wars of the Old Testament and other podcasts for another time as well, but that when they come in and have battles here to protect her and her family, and the thing that sh that she is to do in order to signal where she is, is she hangs a red cord out of her window. And the word cord there is tikva, which means hope. Um, it's the noun version of hope. So you can hear tikva comes from kava, and it's the noun version of it. But in her case, she hangs a red tikva out her window. Like she hangs this in this place of sort of desperation. Will you please save me? There's a, there's a noun tikva that's there that she's hanging out. Like her, the only action she's doing there is like putting it out the window. Whereas here we're in the verb hope in Genesis one, nine. And in the verb hope, what is the action? Draw together and bring together. There's something being actively brought together in the verb hope. And I wonder if that gets at some of that distinction, Lisa, that you're talking about, because we don't often talk about a noun hope and a verb hope in English. <laughs> a noun hope and a verb hope does exist separately in Hebrew. We have this verb of the gathering of together that's a weight hope. And then we have this cord of hope that's a noun, that's a tikva. Yeah, I think with the verb, I think the, the thought that comes to my mind has been 
the bringing together, it, it feels a little bit like presence and wholeness. Like there's a, a level of like full immersion almost like it's just, cause I was thinking about like, this is to go back to the corniness of our empty ice cream bowl, but like, why is that such a dynamic thing? I feel like it's because there's an alignment with like mind, body, soul, spirit, mm-hmm. everything is like, now all is right with the world because the house is finally quiet and I get my dessert. And it's like, there's like this bringing together of all of that into this moment. And it just, now obviously like we could deconstruct all the reasons why I should not be putting that much hope in a bowl (laughs) of ice cream. But the point being, there's like a, an attunement almost um, Mm. in that moment. And it like comes to get like a harmony, um, of everything going on. I feel the harmony and I also feel the participation, Mm -hmm. um, that, and maybe I feel this either way. Like I'm not kind of, I'm sort of part of me is not liking the distinction between noun and a verb because Rahab's still doing something. It's just that her action with the, is to put this cord out the window, but the cord is what's called hope there, not her action. Um, in her action, she's just, um, in her action there, she binds the cord. So she uh, binds and ties together the scarlet tikva in the window, but there's something uh, like, so I guess in both, actually, what I notice is that I don't know how often we think of hope as an action as compared to hope as a feeling. And that also feels like different with it, like that it doesn't actually, like you can be desperate or you can be happy. Either way, what hope looks like is taking an action towards the future. And I don't, I feel like we think about it more as a feeling and not like God ga- actively gathers the water. Um, Rahab actively hangs a cord in her window. There's a there's a thing that's actually being done to set the stage for a future potential. Um, it's not just a waiting. And maybe I may think about that particularly for waiting too, because I think that we hear verses like those who wait on the Lord renew their strength. And we think we're supposed to sit in our prayer closet until God makes us move. <laughs> Whereas the verb itself actually means you are very actively doing something while you wait. You are gathering together water so that there is water and dry for whatever life is going to come. Um, and so there's, I don't know, I'm just thinking about the action of hope mm-hmm. <laughs> in both. But then I'm curious about Lisa, how the, how the desperation comes into the action of hope or if it does, like, does it, does this still feel different or like, does this, is this helpful to somebody who's incarcerated or does this feel shallow, right? Does this feel like if we're in that spot, is the difference feeling that there's not something on the other side that you're preparing for? I don't know. Like I'm trying to, I'm actually like very much in the midst of like thinking about it. I do like the idea, like, I like the idea of hope is taking an action towards the future, but it feels like, um, when people describe a lack of hope, it is like, there's a, there's a darkness and no way forward. And so there's this, there's conversations around, like, how do you hold on to hope? Like, how do you, like, that's the language that gets kind of used with it. Like I'm hanging on by a thread or I want to hope, but it's dangerous to hope. Like, it's like got all those tensions in there that, um, well, I don't imagine God as having those tensions as God is creating, I think mm-hmm. is maybe some of it that I'm like wondering of, but I'm also not, I think it's much bigger than just like this one action. But when I think about Rahab, like Rahab makes sense because Rahab really has like that hanging in that red cord is like a crazy move towards like hoping that something will be different and incredibly risky and it, it could cost her her life. And that feels like that hits at the right like tension with it. Maybe there, because it's a cord that is something you can hang on to. Like there's something tangible about a tikva and it's maybe a little less tangible in Genesis one nine, although it's still, t- it's water. You're ga- there's God is gathering water. But yeah, what are we, what are we gathering? What are we holding on to? What action are we taking towards the future? And what does it require of us? How does it feel in that moment? Well, and if we did that before we did our other actions, that would probably change what we did. 
Ooh, okay. That's another pause here, right? Uh, like God sees that it's good. Are you engaging in like a slowness of process there, Lisa? Or, or what, are you, what are you seeing? I'm always going to think of the creation story as a creation story. Like it's all, <laughs> like, it's a, like it's a story of creating. But in the middle of that story of creating, there is this moment of, we're calling it a gathering, but it's also, it's this hope. Um, but if I pause in the middle of my creating something, whatever plan like I'm making for my life or thing that I'm doing, if I actually paused and thought about like, what am I hoping for? Like, what do, like, what do I want to have happen? Um, what are the tensions? What's like, what actions are required to go forward? I don't know. I don't think I pause and think about that in the middle. Mm. I don't mm. frequently pause in the middle, head down, get the work done. Jason, you used a word earlier that I said I wanted to return to. That is maybe another sort of thing to remember what the word was. Gateway. <laughs> gateway. Yes. I um, total blank for a second there. When we're in verse nine and we get particular, I think both of your translations use the word land and land is actually not there. Um, God says, let the waters be gathered to let the waters of heaven kava gather together into one place, Macomb, we could talk about that word too, and let the dry appear, Gabasa. Now in verse 10, God calls the dry earth. The earth doesn't actually appear in verse 10. Verse nine is that the dry is appearing. So we have waters gathering and dry appears, which takes us further into the story when we think about the Exodus. People, the people have been enslaved in Egypt. They, uh, through a series of events, end up being released. They uh, are making their way to the wilderness. And how do they get to the wilderness? They cross the Red Sea on dry ground. On dry, Yabasa. So Yabasa is not actually used very much in scripture. It is used in Genesis 1-9, and it is used in Exodus 14 and a few other places, but they, it's particular, this word that the people cross that sea on dry, which is this word that is appearing connected to the gathering and the hope. So when we think about this journey that the people are taking, what has and hasn't happened yet as they are, as the waters are gathered so that they can cross on dry. They haven't gotten to the other side. Okay. I don't know. Sorry. I don't know what we're after here. <laughs> sometimes I know exactly where the leading question wants me to go. And sometimes I have no idea. Well, and maybe it's because this is somewhere between leading and not leading. What's the difference between being freed from slavery and being a people group? Choice, autonomy. Let, let's keep all of the things going, right? There's a long list of things there. All that's happened in Exodus 14 is they've been freed. There's a long list of things that have not yet happened. They haven't gotten anywhere yet. They haven't, they haven't gotten anywhere yet. They haven't, they haven't gotten to the wilderness. They haven't gotten the law that's going to help them figure out how to be people. They're getting 40 years away from getting land that they're going to call their own. Like this, all that has happened is they are no longer enslaved in Egypt. And they have begun the journey. And at that point, the waters are gathered and they cross on dry and dry is their gateway. I'm going to pull your word back in <laughs> to what's to come. Yeah, but the, well, the Egyptians are still coming behind them. It's not and, like it's like. And the Egyptians are on I mean, their tail chasing them to bring them yeah, back. Like they're it's not a miracle, even... but it's also a little bit of panic. And like, is this actually, it's for real. Like <laughs> right. they're hold, like holding the, <laughs> I mean. There's some, there's some hope that you need to be able to cross that dry. Mm -hmm. Maybe there we get some of that desperation feeling a little bit <laughs> more mean. again. There's this thing happening in Genesis 1, 9, and 10 that is really the story of the human experience of what it is to pause at that moment that is good, even when there's so much yet to come, because we want to rush to the yet to come. We want to we're going to rush to the story of the promised land. We want to rush to the bowl that's already filled with ice cream. We want to rush to the planner that's full of productivity. 
versus pause and say, look at the dry that creates a gateway. Look at the water gathered that creates this, that's this action of hope. And let's see the goodness here and not just keep rushing forward to the next thing. If I think about the action of gathering water, that actually requires a significant like force to like mm -hmm. pull apart and separate water. And so I'm actually like, I'm, I'm wondering if like, do we truly experience hope unless we have to actually exert a ton of, of energy into the gathering, mm. right? Like, mm. do I really know what hope is like, unless I'm in a, unless I'm in a place of like truly exerted, does that make sense? What I'm trying to yeah. like? No, tons of sense. Yeah. Like the effort, the heaviness of hope. Like we tend to think like, oh, just hope. You know, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. I read that verse. Feels like a, something you embroider on a pillow, not something of those who exert all of your force to gather water for what God might do will renew your strength. Why do you need your strength renewed? Because you used it all. Like, why do you need that strength? Because you're using significant force in the kind of hoping and waiting you're doing. Like that ties right into that idea of like, there's something really required of us, perhaps when we're actually engaging with this idea of Kala. And there was something really required of God, perhaps to do that, um, that we don't always think of as we think of all of the big, big, powerful words for God. What if God... Somebody, somebody I uh, was talking to recently, the very first paper her um, professor had her write in seminary was on the vulnerability of God. And she was like, what? <laughs> I don't, what? <laughs> what if God is exerting force of some sort here? And it's, but it's worth it. Well, I, I think of, that relates to more of what it means to be human, right? Is like, you really experience who you are when you go through stuff, not when you're, not when it's easy. Yeah. I think we all enjoy those times, but probably not as much as we do after on the other side of a hard thing or a time when we exerted a lot of energy. Yeah. Are we pausing to see that in our lives? Are we pausing to engage with those kinds of actions that do have the risk of, we don't quite know how it's going to turn out, but it's worth trying. Uh, because of the way that trying is engaging us with something important. This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that. Process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching Safety.